Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hi, folks. It's Rick Wilson. And welcome to The Daily Beast's The New Abnormal. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, a left-wing pundit and editor-at-large at The Daily Beast. I'm also an editor at The Daily Beast, a former Republican political strategist, best-selling author, and full-time troublemaker. We're here to have fun, sharp conversations with some of the smartest people in media, politics, business, and science that help make what's happening in the country and the world clearer. I'll try to keep Rick to the minimum number of F-bombs and try to keep our kids, pets, and other wildlife sounds from invading our respective bunkers. Hi, Rick Wilson. Good evening, Molly Jong-Fast. How are you? You're more famous than you were on Thursday. That's what they tell me. Because <laughs> you were on 60 Minutes with your boy band. <laughs> I was on 60 Minutes with my boy band. Actually, I think we more think of ourselves as a heavy metal band. The flowing locks, the loud music. That's right. <laughs> I mean, our dance moves really aren't up to, like, BTK standards. Or, oh, wait, BTK is the serial killer. What is a charming Korean boy band? BTM? Yes. I think I have PTSD after this. <laughs> <laughs> what if BTS and BLM had a merger? It would be like the nightmare for every Trumper. What protest. What if we just talk about politics? We never talk anymore, Molly. <laughs> Rick Wilson, what is going on? Well, the super spreader in chief has gone to the place where dreams and seniors go to die. Sanford, Florida, where he's having an airport rally and saw a little bit of video of it a few minutes ago. And you'd be surprised how robust the belief in Donald Trump's miracle elixir must be, because when these maskless 75-year-olds come down with the vid in a week or two, they're going to all say, well, where's my Regeneron? And their doctors will stare at them and say, the was what? No, I'm so sorry. Why don't you put this respirator on? Let's talk about Ron DeSantis. First of all, Trump didn't wear a mask there, even though he's still contagious. Did DeSantis go to the rally? Yeah, DeSantis introduced him. Well, of course, you know, Donald Trump is obsessing about getting out of the White House again now that he is completely free and clear of COVID. Did you see the Brian Karam piece this afternoon? He was interviewing a bunch of White House staffers and they said they have no idea what to believe anymore. They have no idea to believe whether he's been tested and he's negative or if he was never positive in the first place or if it was all big act from the start or if it's an act now or if they're going to be in the pathway of this. Or if there are any of them are going to get paid. Well, that too. Well, if you're in the campaign, if I were you, I'd get my checks before October 15th, kids. <laughs> I think that's about right. Just saying. But no, look, he's out on the road again and he's going to be on the road again. And so the package of approximately 200 people that has to travel with the president, no matter where he goes, okay, campaign or, or no campaign, they're now all at risk of getting COVID from the travels they will be on with the Mad King. And it is a sign that he is coming to understand that there are a lot of states moving out of play for him, including a lot of states he really, really would really, really, really like to win. <laughs> like what? Oh, I don't know. Places like Ohio and Pennsylvania and North Carolina. Well, he's actually doing okay in North Carolina. When you're two back in Texas and you're a Democrat, people like Donald Trump are paying attention. And then look, if, if somebody wants to drop 10 million bucks into Texas tomorrow, you could win that race. If somebody out there wanted to put $10 million into Texas, I think you could close the gate on that race. There's 750,000 undecided and leaning Biden Republicans in the state of Texas right now. Yeah, we've, we've done a lot of data scraping in the last few days, and it's an astounding number. He's just not that popular anymore with people who have a college education, and Texas has become a much more college-educated state in the last 10 years. So, Michael Bloomberg, if you're listening, <laughs> the number is $10 million, right? Is that fair? I think $10 million would probably do the trick, honestly. It doesn't even, it's not even that big of a lift. Look, the Democrats in Texas will crawl over broken glass right now to vote against Donald Trump. The whole ball game is in slicing off just enough disaffected Republicans there. And it's not an impossible task. It's a hard task. But if you did it, it would also end up Trump would panic. He'd have to dump $50 million in there that he doesn't have. Well, I'll just loan it to the campaign myself, said Donald Trump, if he was actually named Michael Bloomberg, because Donald Trump can't 
on the campaign a million dollars because he's broke. Did you see that stuff in the Times about how Trump's loan to his campaign was actually illegal? Yes. You're shocked in some way there's a financial shenanigan or some chicanery around Donald Trump. Shocking. Who could have seen it? Who could have imagined that outcome? But, you know, look, he's going to be back on the road. It's going to be dangerous for people. And one very smart pollster said to me today, he said, look, Trump got a little sympathy bounce out of being sick. Republicans came home and he says this week, you know, between Amy Comey Barrett and a little sympathy bounce for Trump, he probably gained you know, two points overall in, in various state and national polls. But I said, well, lucky for your side that he's going to go out and start campaigning again and saying crazy goddamn shit every day. How's that going to work out for you? He goes, oh, it's already started. <laughs> this is a guy who's doing work at that level and he's kind of checked out at this point. It's just like, what Limbaugh shed? Well, Molly, you know, you, you could see the preview coming on Friday of last week of, of how crazy he's going to going to be in the next 20 days. When he calls Rush Limbaugh and has a long, oh, two hours, sweaty, intimate phone session with him. It has to be ended by Rush playing music. When even Rush Limbaugh's like, guys, I know you're busy, but you know, that was a phone call that started out with, what are you wearing? What are you wearing? <laughs> Is it loose? Oh, what did you <laughs> Can we FaceTime Rush? <laughs> this is the worst thing you've ever said to me. And I had been through a lot. <laughs> but this is the worst thing you've ever said to me. I will be haunted. By yes, this. you will. Yeah, thank you. Because Rush was wearing a... No, no. A kimono. <laughs> no. You know you're envisioning Rush in a kimono right now. No, don't do it. <laughs> I'm in the fetal position. <laughs> Fetal stem cell position? You mean <laughs> right. the drug which was uh, derived from fetal stem cells, which Donald Trump used at Walter Reed Medical Center? But you know that pro-lifers gave him a pass because he was not involved in that particular abortion. Well, I have some bad news for them. <laughs> <laughs> Talk to me about Republicans trying to distance themselves from Trump while still trying not to alienate Trumpers. This is the eternal conundrum. I would like to lose weight, he's said, but only without dieting or exercising. It is the impossible position to be in because a Trump voter, the only way they look at a Republican candidate, whether it's John Cornyn in Texas or Sue Collins in Maine or Joni Ernst in Iowa or Cory Gardner in Colorado or Martha McSally in Arizona, they do not look at them as independent political actors from individual states. The only way Trump voters judge them is, do you love the great leader? Are you loyal to the dear leader? I'm saying that in what I refer to as North Korea, American Trump cult speak. Let's talk about Joni Ernst in this debate with Teresa Greenfield and the moderator who I thought these state debate moderators have done a great job. He said, do you support for Donald Trump? And she could not say it. Joni Ernst. Of course not. Oh, no, that was Martha McSally. I'm sorry. That was Martha McSally. Martha McSally said she could not say it. She could not say she supported Trump. She said she supported the tax cuts for Arizona. You know why? Because Martha McSally always seen the same polls that I have out of Maricopa County, where the vast majority of the deciding vote will be cast in the Arizona U.S. Senate race. And Republican women in Maricopa County, by a majority, are voting for Joe Biden. This is how bad Martha McSally's campaign is. She's trailing Donald Trump. Most Republican Senate candidates are leading Trump. She's trailing Trump. She is about as popular as mail-order herpes. <laughs> There's nothing for her but downside at this point. The Trumpers hate anybody who shows disloyalty to Donald Trump. She has dug a political grave by being too loyal to him. And now when it would be smart to back away, she's stuck. So, you know, that's what happens when you have a personality cult and not a political party. Is mail order herpes a thing? I think you should yell Alexa. Alexa? I don't think I have an Alexa, but let's try it anyway. <laughs> One of the interesting things that happened today during the hearing was that Ben Sass, who is like quietly trying to hope that 2024 will be his, he's sort of always measuring the presidency, said that he didn't agree. He sort of tried to differentiate himself from Donald Trump. Was that when he was saying that some of the things about COVID? Well, yes. And he did. He said, I don't necessarily agree with what, how Donald Trump handled COVID and da, da, da. And it was sort of, it was sort of interesting. I wondered if that was sort of the first crap of these Republicans. Well, Ben Sass has always been a tiny bit crypto pseudo kind of sort of pretend independent. Pre 
pretendependent, if you will. <laughs> but, you know, he doesn't have to worry about a re-election right now. And, and so he's, you know, fairly... Look, what Ben Sass did today was the equivalent of someone standing in the middle of the White House in the Oval Office and they're like, fuck you, Mr. President, in the minds of most Trumpers, okay? So Ben is getting hate online for that and whatever. He, he's fine. Don't cry for him, Ben Sass. The guy is, politically speaking, in the worst possible position you can be in. He has given Trump too much deference on the one hand, and yet, having said the slightest word against him, he is now disqualified from Republican primaries in the future. I promise you, you know, Marco or Ted Cruz or whoever runs in 2024. Tucker Carlson. Hey, Tucker. They will run ads saying, liberal Ben Sass hates Donald Trump. Remember when Ben Sass, the liberal liberal, said this? And they'll also cut the little clip and then he'll say, it's time for a real leader to carry on Donald Trump's legacy. But it can't be liberal Ben Sass, whose liberal liberalism is too liberal for America. He's like AOC with a Cornhusker accent. <laughs> We're getting pure, unadulterated Rick Wilson tonight. It's not the empire. It's the empire of poor, oppressed Dr. Anthony Fauci. <laughs> no, let me tell you something about Anthony Fauci. You could right now in Washington, D.C., hear a pen drop at the mention of his name because all the Trump people are waiting for the explosion. They know two things. They know, one, that every time they poll Anthony Fauci, his numbers are higher than Trump's by about 25 points. And yet this has been the dread they've been pondering the whole time. When does Trump lose his shit with Fauci? This one was pretty big. And Fauci's fairly direct and immediate, like, they took me out of context. They did not quote me correctly. I'm unhappy about this. That, to me— He said it was harassment. Yeah, that, to me, Trump will tell the campaign, dig in, keep running the ad. Because Trump is like a dog that sees— like birds on TV and or cat that sees birds on TV and keeps smashing into the TV, hoping the birds will be there. He can smash into Fauci all he wants. It's not going to make his numbers higher than Fauci's. And that's what it's really like underneath it is that they want Trump to shut up, but Trump loves a fight. And so he will fight. Yeah, I think that's true. It's really interesting. He can't fire Fauci. No, not really, especially at this point. But I don't think he has the jurisdiction to do it because he works for NIH, right? Oh, wait a minute. Well, guys, I have to go back in one thing. There's a video clip someone just sent me. I'm going to retweet it right now. Uh, Ron DeSantis running down a line of people high-fiving them with no gloves, no mask. Woo! Herd mentality, baby. How to get COVID at a Donald Trump rally. Let's be clear about this sudden desire to have herd immunity as a national policy. The cost of herd immunity at the current death rates in the lowest possible boundary. The best case scenario, the lowest infection rate, the highest survival rate would mean that 2.74 million Americans will die. Yeah, that's a lot of Americans. If you are so hard over on proving your fucking point about herd immunity, you first, bitches. <laughs> this is 2.74 is the low boundary with the, with the numbers, and the number could be as high as 5.5 million people dead. If you're willing to accept 5.5 million dead Americans, fuck you. If you're willing to accept 5.5 million dead Americans, and you think that's a great outcome because you don't want to wear a mask, and you don't want to socially distance, and you want to go out to bars every night, go fuck yourself. Get the fuck out of here. Look, let's say 2.74 million people, okay? That's terrifying. Okay? That's a Wyoming and a Rhode Island and a South Dakota and a North Dakota and an Idaho. This is a ridiculous and dangerous belief. The idea that you're ever, ever going to end up with herd immunity before a vaccine at that cost at this point in the game, it's a really, really bad idea, especially because this isn't the regular flu or something else that's amenable to herd immunity. COVID has a suite of symptoms and effects on the human body that mitigate the idea of herd immunity as a good strategy. But call me crazy. I'm not an epidemiologist or an immunologist. I just read things from, you know, epidemiologists and immunologists and not Jared fucking Kushner and <laughs> Peter Navarro. And what about the crazy guy from Stanford? Oh, Scott Atlas? Yeah, Scott Atlas. Yeah, he was he... on the White House with this weekend wearing no mask at the, no uh, mask. At the uh, AstroTurf event 
that was put on this weekend uh, by Candace Owens. Those people were all paid to attend, so God bless them. And they were supposed to have, weren't they supposed to have like 2,000 people and it ended up only being 400 or 200? It was a couple hundred at most. And of course, when they got there, they decided they would jam them all together. <laughs> right, to make it look like more. Alex Gidney is the director of the amazing new film, Totally Under Control, on the mishandling of the COVID crisis in America. He has also directed other amazing documentaries like Agents of Chaos, Zero Days, and Enron, The Smartest Guys in the Room. Alex, this movie is so unbelievably amazing. First, talk to me about how you decided to do it and how this came about. So I had no business doing this movie at all. As you know, I was hard at work on another movie called Agents of Chaos, which was consuming a lot of my time. But suddenly, March, April, I'm in the middle of the pandemic in sort of the epicenter of the pandemic, which is New Jersey and New York. A friend of mine had died from COVID. Another friend of mine was on a ventilator for two weeks. And it just struck me that the federal response was so feckless and so damaging that it would be worth doing a film about it. That would empower me in some way. But also, I wanted to do a film about it that would come out when a judgment could be made. So, you know, I wanted to make it on a fast track to have it come out right about now so that it would have some kind of impact on the election. So I decided to go forward with the thinking that the way to do it would be to focus on the early days, because with the fire hose of of scandal and lies and 24-7 news cycle that, that we're all drinking from, that those early days would actually seem like important history to understand, even as we might be continuing to be rolling around in the pandemic. So, so that was the idea. And then I needed help. And so I called out to Ophelia Harutunian and to Suzanne Hillinger and asked them if they would work with me on this and produce and direct it with me. And, they, and thankfully, they said yes. And so we embarked. And But we didn't really get started started on it until early May, which was, that's not so very long ago. No, it's not. <laughs> so we had a lot of work to do and we put together a wonderful team. We had four editors working on it simultaneously and they were editing almost before we started interviewing. And we even had to figure out how to film this because we were in the middle of a pandemic. That's so interesting when you show them bringing these special cameras. Will you talk about these special cameras? Sure. So we had two setups. One was the COVID cam and the COVID cam was designed to be a device that you could leave on someone's porch and they could pick it up and turn it on. It was invented by Ben Bloodwell, with whom I had worked going back to Enron. He was the assistant camera on Enron. And he came up with a, it was basically a tray with a handle that had a laptop, a DSLR and a microphone. And then we'd send it to wherever the interview subject was, leave it on their porch and then hook up to their internet. And then that meant that Ben had eyes on whatever the camera was seeing and the subject would carry it into their house then Ben could literally control the focus and the iris of the camera and they would set it up in a room and then just roll. It was kind of incredible. And that meant that the subject never had to have any human contact with anybody. And so we did that for two of the interview subjects. The other way we did it was we would rent an Airbnb in whatever location it happened to be. If it was somewhere near Ben and he's out of Philadelphia, then he would go there. If it was somewhere else, then he would give the person instructions. And the camera person would go in alone to an Airbnb, kind of scrub it down, and then set up this shield, a series of shower curtains and, and tarps that would be between the subject and the camera person. And then there would be a lens sticking through and mounted onto the lens was a thing called the iDirect, which is a kind of teleprompter. And it broadcasts on it the face of whoever is doing the interview so that they can look into the barrel of the lens, but they're seeing the face of the interviewer. And that was a way of not having to reckon with differing internet speeds and so forth, and also to do a proper lighting setup, but also be safe. Those were the two options we had. And we did do some filming. I mean, it's interesting. You can see in the film, we did some shooting in South Korea, and we had a similar kind of setup, though in South Korea, you can see a crew of four or five people, which testifies to how much better they were doing than we are, because they weren't that concerned, because they had basically contained the virus. So I'm curious to know, what was the thing where you were like, holy shit. Because there are so many moments in this movie where I'm like, oh. There were two holy shit moments for me. And 
One was a kind of slow awakening over time that in all likelihood, the Trump administration had intentionally slow walked testing. And that was just a jaw dropping revelation for me. You know, it was even suggested by Kathleen Sebelius, but I didn't really believe it until we got to the end of the process in the movie. And particularly when we understood that the Trump knew by February 7th, thanks to Woodward, that the virus was dead. So that was a jaw dropper. But I think the interview for me that just left me gobsmacked was the interview with Max Kennedy Jr., where he described step by step by step what was going on inside the Jared Kushner task force, so-called. And it was just a portrait of such utter incompetence and corruption that I just couldn't believe it. And Max was describing it in such sort of soft-spoken, detail-oriented terms that not a person who had an axe to grind, he was just telling you the way it was. And the way it was was just terrible. From now, you're sort of an expert on this. Can we talk a little bit about when Jared Kushner realized that the blue states were dying faster than the red states? We looked into that, and I think there was politics being played, and we showed a little bit of that in the film, particularly when they're they're forcing Gavin Newsom to eat crow publicly in order to be able to get badly needed swabs for testing. And But we couldn't find any evidence that they intentionally targeted blue states for not getting PPE, for example, because they weren't going to get the votes there anyway. But I think what did happen is that over time, you know, particularly around that period where Trump is tweeting, liberate Minnesota, liberate Michigan. There was this belief that, or not the belief, I mean, the virus hit worse in the early days and in these very populous blue states that didn't give, that weren't going to support Trump's presidential run in any way, shape or form. And there was this sense that if you could kind of pin it on them or make the other states believe that they were immune, that that would accrue to your political benefit. And that is effectively what ended up happening and what I think ended up causing this politicization of masks, which is so absurd and so so desperately destructive to public health. But it, it all came out of, I think, that red state, blue state polarity, even though we now know, and, and the film shows, that the virus was in the so-called red states pretty early on. It just didn't get to the level of contagion that Seattle, San Francisco, LA, and particularly New York and New Jersey did from the early days. So Alex, I feel like so many people don't feel like it's a coherent through line of how bad Trump's administration fucked this up. But one of the main pushbacks I always hear from people that seems to be the talking point to muddy the waters is that Pelosi and Schumer said all this stuff that was incorrect as well. I find you to be such a straight shooter in your documentaries. I wanted to know what you thought about their role was in that since I didn't really see that touched on that much. It's true. We didn't touch on Congress that much. There was a period where we thought we were going to get at, you know, particularly the relief measures and that. But it seemed to me that so much of this was about the executive branch, because that's what was really in control of the virus. You know, HHS is not an arm of Congress. It's part of the executive branch. And HHS is what controls Asper, what controls CDC, it's what controls FDA. And so the response to the virus was really coming out of the executive branch. And while I think there is a film to be done about Congress or certainly articles to be done and certainly an article and film to be done about the states as well, because there were there were certainly bungles there. Our focus was just on the federal response, that is to say, the executive branch. Yeah, that's true. Where do you think we are now? In some ways, we're in a much better place in the sense that we know a lot more about the disease than we did early on. That's something that people don't think about enough. We really didn't know how the disease spread, whether it was asymptomatic. Did it spread through the air? Did it, was it these droplets? And also, how do you treat it? What do you do to try to get the air through the lungs? Even something as simple as lying in your stomach can be hugely effective in terms of treating COVID. We have a drug now called remdesivir, which really does help. So in that sense, we're in a good place, but we're in a terrible place in the sense that we don't have any national coordinated plan about how to get out of the situation that we're in. We're rudderless. And that's the thing that has to change for us to be able to move forward. Every place is different in terms of how they're reckoning with it. Every place is different in terms of whether or not they have access to proper testing. And so that, I think, is really the problem. And also, we've lost trust and faith in our scientific institutions because they've become corrupted by a political agenda that is insisted on harnessing them to messaging, which is designed only to get Trump reelected. So that's what has to change. 
So this is such a complex story. And one of the things I think that's always so impressive with your documentary, especially like Zero Days, I couldn't believe how well you wove this story together. I'm curious, though, is there a figure that you think doesn't get enough of the blame in this, that you're consistently looking at this and going, what the hell? Why does no one see this? Well... If you watch the film, I think you could probably posit a guess. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I, I can do that. <laughs> Might be Alex Azar. He's the person who had the responsibility to stand up for his team, the dedicated civil servants in CDC and FDA and also at Asper. But, you know, there are other people along the way. I mean, and I think it's important that, and we talked about this a lot in the cutting room, one can become too Trump-centric in describing the problem here. And clearly Trump, because there are structural issues at work, i.e. a very bad and, and unequal healthcare system, but also there were administration officials who had become accustomed to flattering the boss rather than doing what was necessary. And by the way, they were chosen to some extent to do just that. And they were chosen not because they were the best and the brightest, sometimes just the opposite. And into that category fall people like Redfield, Burks, Hahn at, at FDA. These people have not served us well. And every time they have an opportunity to do the right thing, they almost always don't. Oh, so scary. <laughs> we're all going to die. This film really is amazing. I've been telling all my friends who don't believe that Trump really deserves the brunt of the blame for why COVID's so bad in America to watch it. Can you tell everybody where they can see it? You can watch it now on Apple TV and Amazon Prime. And on October 30th, it goes up on Hulu. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Before we get into things, we have a fun little treat. There are so many insane things happening in the world right now, and two episodes a week just aren't enough to cover it all. So, The New Abnormal is going to release a limited-run series of bonus interviews over the next few weeks for Beast Inside members only. We'll release a new one each Sunday, but listen carefully. Only Beast Inside members will have access to these. So, head over to thenewabnormal.thedailybeast.com to become a Beast Inside member now. That's newabnormal.thedailybeast.com. Mehdi Hassan is a journalist, and now he's the host of the brand new Peacock show, The Mehdi Hassan Show. So let's talk first about this. One of the first interviews I remember seeing you do was this incredible interview with Eric Prince. And it was just like show, like I had never seen anyone do an interview quite that well. And so I would love for you to talk about how it came about and just how you do that. So I used to do a show for Al Jazeera English prior to joining Peacock called Head to Head and Upfront. I did two shows for them and I did that for several years. And the show you're mentioning, the Eric Prince show, was called Head to Head and it's filmed at the Oxford Union in front of a live audience. And I always think live audiences make a show so much better. A lot of TV shows don't do it anymore just because of costs over the years. A lot of TV shows on both sides of the Atlantic have like cut back on live studio audiences for interview shows, which I always think is kind of sad. But that was an interview with Eric Prince. He was in the middle of his kind of promoting his latest plan, I think, to privatize the war in Afghanistan, I remember. That was the shtick. That was what he was selling. That's why he agreed to the interview. The number of people who asked me why Eric Prince agreed to come on my show knowing my style of interview. If I had a dollar for every person who asked me that, I'd be a multimillionaire now. And I don't know the answer, to be honest. If I was Eric Prince, I wouldn't have done it. <laughs> uh, but he did it. It was an hour-long interview. And the way we do head tests, we do a lot of prep, Molly. A lot. Prepare for days, weeks. We role-play. We, I have a producer role, pretend to be the guest, and we go through possible answers <laughs> they might say. I mean, we don't wing it. We, it's, a, it's a properly prepared, produced interview. And I like to prepare 
prepare for interviews. I like to be ready. With Prince, he's one of these guests who I think is just not used to being challenged in that way. Even when he's done US media interviews with quote-unquote liberals and leftists or whatever it is, you know, there's a certain rules of the game, I think, which I don't necessarily follow. Not in the sense that I do gotchas or I'm trying to be rude. It's more like there's no undue deference when I try and interview someone, especially a person in power. And so, you know, we asked the blunt questions in that show. And I think if you remember the clips that went viral, we're asking him about his congressional testimony where he basically lied about his context with the Trump campaign <laughs> and about his visits to the UA, the Seychelles. That's right, where he happened, yeah. Yeah, it was just a beer, he said. And we kind of nailed him on the fact that he claimed he had said in congressional testimony what he hadn't said. And we had been through every page of the hundreds of pages of transcript. So, you know, when you have those moments when you're prepared, it's great. And it was great TV. And, you know, Adam Schiff referred him to DOJ for investigation afterwards. I don't even know what's going on with that. I keep, occasionally we hear updates about the DOJ, but it is the Bill Barr DOJ. So I guess I'm not full of confidence that they will actually do anything about Eric Prince. Yeah, hard to <laughs> trust. Yeah, it was one of those interviews where a lot of Americans who didn't follow me at that point, because I had a big global audience at the time, got to know me a bit more because there was a sense of, I get a lot from, from American viewers, I get a lot of frustration. I get Americans saying to me, why can't all of our TV shows ask questions and be like your show? And that's what I get. It's basically, I, I'm like a valve for their discontent and frustration. Yes. Okay. So why? Not to put you on the spot, but why are you so much better at that than American shows? Oh, you're too kind. I mean, now I, now I have a show on American TV, so I'll be respectful to my peers. So it's a good question. I think it, I think it's to do with a multiplicity of different things. I think it's to do with the fact that, in general, American political and media culture is just more deferential to people in power, which is kind of weird given you guys had the revolution. And, and I, I say you guys, I just became a citizen <laughs> a few days ago. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm in a kind of identity crisis here because I'm both British and American at the same time. So let me wear my British hat now to answer this question. As a <laughs> <laughs> I look at Americans and say, you guys have a weird deference towards power that we don't necessarily have in the same way in the UK, which is odd because you had the revolution. So you think you guys would be the ones who were more kind of anti-government and willing to call out the people in power. But, you know, if you look at how, for example, the president enters uh, the Roosevelt Room in the White House, the press corps stand up. Uh, people in power here, once they lose office, they get to keep their titles. You get kind of Secretary Clinton and Mayor Giuliani. Mayor of what? He hasn't been mayor of New York for years. But it's really <laughs> culture lends itself to kind of a certain respect and reverence, both not just for the institutions, but the people who've held them. And I think I don't have that, really. Um, so that helped me. And I think generally, there's a big debate, as you know, about access journalism, which applies on both sides of the Atlantic. You know, this idea that if you are too tough in an interview, if you if you offend the guest, will they ever return? Will their friends return? Uh, will other people from their political party come on? And, you know, to be honest, at Al Jazeera English, I don't really need to worry too much about those considerations or at The Intercept, where I did my podcast before this. Now, maybe I need to think more about that. Maybe it's a real, maybe it's just a, a factor of life in the sense that I'm now doing a nightly show on Peacock, which is NBC's streaming channel. And obviously, I'm trying to get guests from different walks of life, different political parties. I don't want to be a different person. I still want to ask tough questions, but I'm much more cognizant of the fact that you are going to lose more people. You're going to have more people turning you down. And that's always a problem as well when it comes to these interviews and bookings. Right. Anytime somebody's starting a new show, especially one with a new audience on a new network, what else, aside from your interviewing style, can we expect to see? from this show that's going to be different from other shows? It's, that's a great question. So one of the things I'm trying to take advantage of is it's built, it's designed like what you would see as another primetime uh, you know, cable show. On It's an hour long, it's four blocks, we have ad breaks. But the good thing about Peacock is there's very few ads, even though there's a subscription service and there's a free service. Even on the free service, you can watch my show for free every night at 7 p.m. Eastern, there's a plug. Or um, <laughs> forever. The good thing about it is there's actually much fewer ads than your average cable or network news hour. So the average cable hour, you're on air for about, what, 42 minutes, 43 minutes, something like that, I think. Uh, whereas on my show, we're on air for 55 minutes. The ad breaks are only a minute long. So it's a lot more real estate to cover, occupy. It makes it more tiring for me, but it's actually, it means we can have more in-depth interviews, which is something I enjoy, even as a guest. And Molly, you know, this going on cable, one of my frustrations as a guest always is, it's so short, blink and you miss it. You make one point and it's like, thank you for coming on, see you later. And I'm like, I was <laughs> all that time. So one of the good things about my show, and we've been doing this week, week one, we're now in week two, is having the lengthier interviews, being able to have a kind of 17-minute conversation with Elizabeth Warren, being able to really get into depth on the Michigan white nationalism story on Friday, the, the militias, we had the Michigan AG on, we had Obama's former assistant attorney general for counterterrorism on. I was able to do a kind of history lesson in how we got here from Tim McVeigh and, and Waco and Ruby Ridge. And I just think that space, the time that allows someone like me, who has very strong views, as you know, to be able to air them and explain 
express them and really break down a subject. And I think that's quite important in prime time. It's not often done, partly because of the time constraints, partly because some people just don't want to do it. So that's something from my show. It's not just the interviews. I'm very keen in kind of breaking subjects down, getting to the bottom of things. Uh, for example, this week, I know I'm going to get into court packing and I really want to talk about this whole idea of, oh, is it nine justices or eight justices? Is nine a magic number? Are the Republicans hypocrites because they wanted to keep the court at eight for four years had it been Hillary Clinton? Aren't they doing it at a state level? I think these stories that you can break down in so many ways and in 2020 with Trump, we just move on so quickly and one of my mottos for my team and my show is we're just not going to move on quickly. No, I think that's great and it's something that I think we are all interested in. Do you find, do you think that American media has learned the lessons of 2016 or no? So it's a great question. No. As a big picture answer, no, I would have to say as a whole. Obviously, it's very hard, Molly, when we talk about, and I'm guilty of this, I'm sure you are, we all are, yeah. journalistic shorthand when we say the American media and people say, well, what do you mean? You can't just take a broad brush. There is TV, there's print, there's online, there's whatever, there's left, there's right. But I think as a big picture, just as a kind of, if you do a kind of snapshot overview of where we are, not really. And I'll tell you why, the day after the first debate, if you saw the headlines on the front of the print press, both the national newspapers and local papers, it was horrific. I mean, I, I was so depressed to see kind of, it was all both sides. It was Biden and Trump exchange barbs. It was, you know, uh, both sides throw insults. And I was like, yeah, Biden called him a clown. Uh, Trump said he wouldn't accept a peaceful transition of power. I mean, it's just not the same. <laughs> and it was just that Trump interrupted him a thousand times and got told off by the moderator for breaking the rules. That is not the same as Biden in frustration saying, ah, shut up, man. And then you're seeing this over the last few days. I don't know if you've been following the Biden Supreme Court brouhaha. Oh, yeah, of course. Where you have journalists, liberal journalists, falling over one another to say, oh, this is as bad as Trump. This is like Trump saying he won't leave office. Biden won't answer. The it's not the same thing. Biden's position is if you push through the Supreme Court nominee and if you try and use the court to steal the election, then yeah, I may have to do something about the court. Uh, we'll decide that after the election, which is a legitimate view. You don't have to agree with it. But this, I just feel it's, again, it's journalists who are, a lot of political journalists who are almost kind of, it's inherent in who they are and what they do to not to be on one side or the other. And they must, you know, if Trump does this, then I need to find something to criticize Biden or Clinton on. And that was the problem in 2016, where you had Trump with his multiple scandal, the sexual assault scandals, the Trump University scandal, the Trump Foundation scandal, the racism, the bigotry, the corruption. And yet we had Hillary's emails. And if you look at the Harvard study that was done on media coverage of 2016, you'll see that amazing bar chart that people can Google, the Shorenstein Center did this. And it's like one long bar of Hillary Clinton emails. That was media coverage of emails outnumbered all of the tiny little bars for each of Trump's separate scandals put together. I don't think it was journalists deliberately trying to help Trump, in, not in some cases. I think it was just journalists thinking, I can't just keep criticizing Trump. I'm not allowed to. I must find something on the other side to show that I'm fair and I'm impartial. And we're doing that again now. It's like, oh, Biden said something that we can get him on to show that we're fair. Well, it's not the same thing as the thousand things that Trump does on a daily basis. And that's where I think we haven't learned the lesson. I am very like in the weeds on this because I wrote about it for Vogue and I just have been thinking about it a lot. So Trump has said he won't agree to it like a hundred times. That's his brand. We all know that. But at the vice presidential debate, Pence refused to answer it too. And I'm curious to know what your thinking is about that. Well, with Pence, I don't tend to read that much into Pence other than he's a sycophant and therefore he has to kind of go along with what the president says. I mean, if he had someone like, we're going to accept that, that would have undermined their entire strategy. And just answering this question and your previous question again, I'm just reminded of an Associated Press story that's out today on Monday, uh, which buries like multiple paragraphs in a line about how Trump's allies are hoping it will be close on the night so he can declare victory and throw it to the courts, which two points there. Number one, that is their strategy. They're not hiding it. They're like Bond villains. They're telling you what they're going to do. They're not hiding it in any way. It's not. There's no big reveal. They're very clear about what the, the nefarious plan is for election day. And number two, we can't help them do it as journalists. It's weird that AP buried quite an important point that Trump allies are open about the fact that they're not going to you know, accept the result. They buried that multiple paragraphs into a piece rather than say, this is not normal. And I think that should have been the mantra for four years from journalists and media organizations 
questions. And some did, to be clear. I'm not going to paint a broad brush. Some journalists have been excellent. Some interviewers, we've seen some great interviews this year of Trump, finally, on American TV from Jonathan Swan of Axios and Chris Wallace over at Fox News, although he then kind of let himself down on debate night. I think we're going to remember debate Chris Wallace more than we're going to remember interview Chris Wallace in 2020. (laughs) That should have been our mantra for for four years as journalists. This is not normal. That should have preceded and ended every segment on Donald Trump, every interview with Donald Trump, every interview with a Donald Trump supporter. Instead, we kind of just internalized it to the point where, I don't know, I'll throw something at random. Donald Trump said on Fox News days ago that the governor of Virginia has executed a baby. We just moved on. I haven't seen any coverage of that. (laughs) I do remember. I said on my show that night, if I went on TV, if I went on Peacock and said, Donald Trump has executed a baby, I would rightly be fired for saying a ridiculous thing. We all just moved up. It didn't even make for a news segment the morning after. Exactly. I agree. I mean, it's just completely, he gets away with strange and terrifying things and nobody seems to notice. I'm curious to know what you think about the rise of this, really, this sort of Trumpy media and where you see this going. It's very worrying, to be honest. It's one of the most disillusioning, demoralizing aspects of the last few years. As a journalist, I remember telling a colleague of mine a few years ago, it's like, should we just chuck it all in and become accountants? Anything wrong with being an accountant? No, nothing. You know, this idea that, you know, everything we're doing, is there any point to it if people are either not consuming it or just not believing it when they consume it? If they're able to lock themselves off, wall themselves off in an alternative reality where they're fed information about Hunter Biden and fraudulent mail ballots and, you know, Joe Biden's earpiece all day long. If that is what we're competing with, that is deeply dangerous for the media. It's deeply dangerous for democracy. You can't have a democracy if you do not have a shared factual reality. And in an era of trust, Trumpy media in an era of, you know, Fox News, and there's actually channels much worse than Fox News, the OANs and all of that of the world, when they're pumping out what is pure propaganda, completely divorced from reality, completely unhinged, then you really have to ask the question, what is the future for democracy in a country like that? I don't know, Molly, if you've seen uh, The Social Dilemma on Netflix. Uh, My family and I just all sat down and watched it the other day. I have to watch. Again, the social media angle to this as well, like that is so depressing. And Jared Lanier, the the inventor of uh, virtual reality, he says on The Social Dilemma, he says, look, 20 more years of this, of, of kind of social media amplifying nonsense and obviously throwing in the cable news nonsense on Fox and co. You know, can American democracy, can our civilization survive this? And it sounds melodramatic, but facts matter, despite what Kellyanne Conway would have us believe. And if you don't have a shared factual reality, if you are able to, you know, in the old days, quote unquote, Americans would gather around the water cooler or sit down to watch Tom Brokaw or Dan Rather or Peter Jennings or beyond that, before that, Walter Cronkite. Now you, you can watch a debate and then say, how did the debate go. Let me tune into Sean Hannity interviewing the president's son on state TV to tell us how amazing it was. Right. <laughs> so I just think you get that pumped at you 24-7 and you saw what happened to people like Cesar Seyot, the pipe bomber. I mean, his entire defense in court was that I watched Fox News all day. I get, He would eat breakfast, lunch and dinner around Fox News shows. He would schedule his day. But I just think that is deeply dangerous. Now, just to come back to my earlier point, I don't want to be completely negative about it. Obviously, I haven't become an accountant, partly because I'm crap at math. Yeah, it's hard. I actually think accounting is very hard. It's very hard. It's very hard. But the other reason is because, look, I still believe in this. I still believe that facts matter. I still believe that there is an audience out there that is desperate for genuine information, for perspectives that break through the BS, for people who are willing to call out bad faith actors. For me, the story of American politics right now is more than just Trump. It's the story of bad faith actors. And you're seeing that in the Supreme Court hearings. Everything you get from one wing of American politics is all in bad faith. I mean, if you understand that point, you understand every new story going it's all bad faith. No one believes anything. No one on the right who is pitching, whatever angle they're pitching, believes anything that they're actually saying. And I think that's very important to call out. And I'm going to try and do it on a nightly basis. I'm trying to build an audience that's willing to hear some kind of blunt truths, both about where we are politically and where our media is and what needs to be done about it. I'm not going to pretend I'm optimistic, but I'm still hopeful. I love that. I mean, I think it's so important and so necessary. And I also feel like I've been watching the Supreme Court hearings and they're just, there's so much bad faith. As a UK citizen, so you can escape any time. Do you think <laughs> that the conservative, the Tories, are act in better faith? It's a great question. So if you'd asked me that five years ago, ten years ago, I'd have said, look, they're as dishonest as most political parties. You know, politicians are dishonest. Let's be clear. Politicians lie. That's not, you know, breaking news. What is so different about the current era is the way in which Trump and co have turned lying into not just an art form, but it's an instrument of power, right? They don't lie just to get their way. They lie because they want to destroy our shared reality. They want to demonstrate 
demonstrate their power. They want people to back them and say, yes, I don't believe my lying eyes. As Trump once said, do not believe what you see and hear. Believe me. And that is, you know, Hannah Arendt and others have all talked about authoritarians do that. You know, Ruth Ben-Ghia has written about Benito Mussolini and, and, the, and the lies he told and, and the pointless lies that he told. And I just think that's really, really important for us to acknowledge. And what's depressing in the UK is that the Conservative Party there is heading in a Trumpian direction. What Trump has done is he has set out a template for other right-wing parties around the world to now copy. And that's what's so worrying. And, and as I said, before I did my Peacock show, the Mehdi Hassan show, before I did that, I did Upfront and Head to Head. And on those shows, I interviewed politicians from around the world, ministers from African governments, Asian governments. And what I noticed over the last few years is that they all now start talking like Trump. You just see it. They all use the same verbal ticks, the same fake news, the same completely brazen lies, the same kind of made up statistics, the same attack on the media or on the interviewer. And it's just like, this is not a coincidence. People around the world have said, well, it worked for Donald Trump. Why can't it work for us? And I think Boris Johnson is a classic example of that. You're seeing very similar attacks on the BBC and on the press in the UK. You're seeing very similar kind of nativist dog whistling or more than dog whistling. And I just think the similarities are very clear in the way that they are approaching politics. So in that sense, unfortunately, I'd have to answer your question. I think, no, the British Tories may have been a, a slightly better a few years ago, but they're all heading in that Trumpian direction. Trump, Modi, Bolsonaro. It's just the global authoritarian, whatever you want to call it, far-right, populist-right, anti-fact, anti-science, anti-media, anti-democracy movement. Jesus. Tucker Carlson. I feel very clear that I know what's going on in Fox News, right? That Rupert Murdoch has successfully weaponized white grievance politics in a way and translated it into a media empire. But in my mind, Tucker Carlson is different. Do you notice this? And how worried are you about this? It's a great question. So Rupert Murdoch, I did a poll on Twitter the other day. I said, who, who is most responsible for the mess that we're in? And it was kind of Rupert Murdoch, Mark Zuckerberg, Donald Trump, and Murdoch won. And I think that's fair. I think Zuckerberg's coming up fast and I think he should. But Murdoch, in terms of kind of the decades he's put in, he should be recognized for his service and his work towards undermining democracy and race relations around the world. I mean, Kevin Rudd, the former Australian prime minister, has talked about this and what happened in Australia. You look at what happened in the UK, you look at the US, all countries where Murdoch media dominate in many ways. No coincidence there. Tucker Carlson's interesting because there's this kind of faction of people, some on the left, sadly, as well, who think he's somehow different in terms of he's a populist and he's calling out corporations. And, and number one, I just don't believe that's genuine. And he works for Fox. This idea that he's some corporate basher is great. He works for Rupert Murdoch. And also this idea that if you attack corporations or you support workers' rights, it means you're not far right. I mean, literally, that's what the Nazis did. That's what Marine Le Pen in France pitches. If you look at all of the European far right parties, they're very pro welfare state and workers' rights. and big government. That's part of their shtick, that we're going to look after our indigenous workers against the evil foreigners and elites. And on Tucker himself, I mean, it goes back to my point earlier about kind of the bad faith of it all. I don't believe that he believes half this stuff. I mean, we, know we have the leaked tapes about him saying Iraqis are monkeys or apes or whatever it was. Fine, you know, the racism on the right is there. But, you know, if you look at his career trajectory, I just think he's seen a gap in the market like Donald Trump did, and he's filling it. And when you see people like, you know, the Daily Stormer and all these neo-Nazis basically saying, Tucker Carl is our guy. He's doing our messaging, our talking points are on his show. That should worry us for two reasons. Number one, nobody in American television, not even on Fox, should be mainstreaming literal white supremacy and neo-Nazism. And number two, I mean, how evil genius is this guy if he doesn't actually believe it and he's just playing them all? Because, you know, there is talk now about a Tucker Carlson presidential run in 2024. And, you know, I'm not beyond seeing a Tucker Carlson Don Jr. Republican ticket. And that would be both depressing as hell and scary as hell. Somali, as you are aware, under federal, state, local, and international treaty law, we are required on each uh, episode of the New Admiral podcast to include a segment called Fuck That Guy. Wait, tell me more. I haven't heard of it. Most people strangely have an obsessive love with Fuck That Guy. And so here we are, forever bound to Fuck That Guy over and over again. I don't hate it. I don't hate it either. It has a certain life of its own now. Who is your Fuck That Guy? I was about to ask, and some people pay good money for that. <laughs> I was about to have that Klaus von Bülow moment of, you have no idea how strange. <laughs> Klaus von Bülow, kids, he's a role model for the youth of America. All right, go. Who is your fuck that guy? My fuck that guy is a double Mike Lee. And I'm not saying this is true for sure. I've heard that maybe it's apocryphal. I've heard that the porn industry refers to a double Mike Lee as some Jesus Christ. <laughs> 
my God, man. We're trying to clean it up here. No, we're not. I'm trying to. Last night on 60 Minutes, when Leslie Stahl asked me, she goes, are you worried you're sinking to Trump's level? I was like, I hope so. I like that you dropped the 60 minutes in. Wait, so you're fuck that guy. So it's Mike Lee because Mike Lee talks a big game about being a constitutional conservative and a principled, limited government conservative. And he tweeted the other night, democracy isn't the objective. Liberty, peace, and prosperity are. We want the human condition to flourish. Rank democracy can thwart that. But you're thinking... He hates rank choice. It's not rank choice. (laughs) (laughs) You're thinking that doesn't sound like the kind of thing that normally sends Rick into an orbital outrage spiral, but it is. But why? Because this is part of a very dangerous aspect of post-Trump conservatism, where they're trying to reduce liberty and freedom to ancillary elements of our society and our political system, rather than fundamental elements of it. They believe that it's part of a philosophy they're calling ordered liberty. Now, the problem with ordered liberty is that it then decides how certain rights are distributed, not the Constitution. This idea of ordered liberty is an incredibly dangerous philosophy. And unfortunately, they're trying to like lay back to older philosophical principles on it. But what it really is, is about trying to put a pretty face on Trumpism and to keep Trumpism alive after Trump is gone. And the idea that, quote unquote, rank democracy is what we have in this country is absurd. We are still a republic based on a democratic system. And that republic has its principles outlined in the Constitution. And so Mike Lee, you're today's fuck that guy. (laughs) I mean, I also think his amazing role as super spreader should not be undervalued. You mean at the Amy Comey Barrett coronation ceremony? As he was spitting without a mask. And the great irony, of course, is that the worst senator in the entire world, except for Mitch, Ted Cruz, was actually quarantining because of his exposure to Mike Lee. Yes, yes. Can we really say Ted Cruz is the worst when John Kennedy walks the earth? I'm sorry, but I still think Ted Cruz was worse than John Kennedy today. Ted Cruz was so very Ted Cruz. But then again, Lindsey, soon to be ex-Senator Lindsey Graham, was pretty atrocious too. I mean, he's just a nightmare. Someone said today about Ted Cruz, somebody texted me and said, it's the usual Cruz performance. It's a combination of oily and yet oily. (laughs) I promise you that on November 4th, 2020, Ted Cruz is going to be like, Donald who? Of course they are. Right? Of course they are. Wait, Donald what? I've never... uh I believe I may have met someone named Donald with a T before. I, I don't recall, though, when the truth is these people are intimately familiar with the with the smell of Donald Trump's ass because they've been kissing it so hard for so long. That's a good one. I was thinking you'd go for it. That's a sort of cleaner take than I was thinking you might go for. I'm impressed. You're showing a lot of restraint there. That Ted Cruz is more familiar with Donald Trump's t- <laughs> That's the sound of our producer dying. <laughs> That's so getting cut out. Yeah, there's no world in which. So my fuck that guy is going to be Mark Meadows, the guy who went to the hospital with Donald Trump. Has been Few people have been more exposed to COVID than Mark Meadows, and he refused to talk to journalists wearing a mask. But of course. But of course. How are you shocked by this? I'm shocked. I also think, like, Kanye should tie because he has announced himself as a write-in candidate. Well, Kanye is going to greet the fate of all write-in candidates in 35 states, which is to say they get nothing. He won't even be counted. Also, I do have to say, Marsha Blackburn did today say that she hopes to be the same kind of leader and glass ceiling breaker as RBG. From what asylum? On that note, we'll wrap up this episode of The New Abnormal from The Daily Beast. In future episodes, we'll be talking with smart folks from The Daily Beast and beyond from media, culture, politics, and science who will help us understand what's happening to our country and the world. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and share the show on social media. We're just getting started and don't want you to miss an episode. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm Molly Jongfast, and he's The Rick Wilson. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again on the next episode.